I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Apocalypse then and now. It's been nearly a year since Vancouver Dr. Paxton Bach demanded a response to match the scale of death caused by the overdose crisis. As new death toll numbers are released tonight, he tells us it is clear that response still has not come. So close, despite being so far. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich is still behind bars in Russia, but his friend remains hopeful he'll see him again, because Evan's letters from jail are full of encouragement. A complicated kindness, a man living aboard a British barge housing asylum seekers, has died. Now, the community that barge is docked by is in mourning, including people who were initially angry and anxious about their new neighbours. Starting point or extorting point? European leaders will start talks with Ukraine about joining the EU, but a German politician tells us the vote only passed because of blackmail by Hungary's Prime Minister. Brave News World, one old company, has decided that at this moment in time, what we really need is fake news people. Hence, a whole new online channel of AI news hosted by dead-eyed AI anchors. And that's Shoebiz. A Portland shelter discovers a rare pair of gold Air Jordans commissioned by Spike Lee in the donation bin and couldn't be more excited about how much they might fetch. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that gets off on the right and left foot. The number of deaths was already impossible to fathom, and every update is impossible to bear. Yesterday, the coroner's office in B.C. issued a public safety warning to anyone using substances from the illicit market. It said there had been a recent rise in toxic drug deaths. Preliminary data suggests the province has been averaging about seven deaths per day for the past seven weeks. Paxton Bach is the co-medical director of the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use, which is affiliated with UBC. He's also an addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. That's where we reached him. Dr. Bach, about a year ago now, back last January, you spoke at a press conference, and we played a clip of that on our program, and you said that you desperately did not want to be here speaking to the media about this again next year. But here we are, and the numbers for 2023 are likely going to be historic. So how are you dealing with that reality today? It's heartbreaking, I think, for all of us. But it's not about how I'm dealing with it. It's, these are people. These are people's lives. They're people with families and friends and communities. And we've lost record numbers again this year. So it's just, it's so, it's very sad and just unacceptable. What do you see as the biggest failure throughout the last year, throughout 2023, as you and others have worked hard to to address this crisis? You know, it is such a complicated issue, but really. It comes down to the urgency that we choose to to 
uh, direct towards this crisis, the resources we choose to direct to it. Our, our response has clearly been inadequate, and I don't think we can say anything else if we just look at these numbers continuing to climb. Preliminary data released by the coroner yesterday says that unregulated drug toxicity caused more than 200 deaths just in November in British Columbia. And I wonder, on the front line, in in your hospital where you're working, what, what does that look like? What are you seeing? So it has been just a, a torrent of, of individuals for the for years now. Every single day we see we see patients coming into the emergency room, coming into hospital, coming into our clinic who are struggling with, with substance use and unable to access resources to help and who are experiencing on a daily basis all of the harms that are associated with this incredibly volatile and toxic drug supply. It's really a, it's a hopeless feeling to, to just see patient after patient looking for help and not have the, the ability to, to do what we, what we need to do. Have there been any improvements? I mean, I, I grew up in Vancouver, these conversations, we've had these conversations for decades now. Have you seen anything improve? I mean, I think this is not a Vancouver problem. This is not a BC mm-hmm. problem. It's not a Canada problem. This is affecting North America. And there are certainly um, many things that, that are happening out there that do make me feel optimistic. But again, if we look at the numbers and just how much worse they continue to get every single month, uh, it can get very, very uh, disheartening. A lot of the conversation, as you well know, is about safer supply, access to that. You're a prescriber. So what questions do you ask yourself when you're trying to navigate or decide whether that is the best route for the patient sitting in front of you? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated question, a complicated topic, and a complicated discussion. I mean, mm-hmm. the premise of it is fairly straightforward. The primary driver of overdose deaths in North America is not a rising rate of people using substances. It is very specifically the toxicity and unpredictability of the drug supply. So the goal of prescribed safe supply is to give people some alternative to the toxic drug supply so that while they may continue to use substances, they at least know what they're using. So with any given patient that I see, there's lots to consider around their goals, um, around their past history, around what they're seeking. But I, I want to take one step back from that conversation because it is a really important conversation to be talking about meaningful ways of separating people from a toxic and unpredictable drug supply. But it's really important to contextualize that along the, the entire continuum of harm reduction, of addiction treatment care, and really all of the social determinants of health that we need to be talking more about that are contributing directly to this ongoing crisis. Just go a little bit deeper into that for me. What would you like there to be more focus on? Again, I think that every single region, every city, every place, they're going to have different needs, and it just speaks to the complexity of the crisis. But the the overarching theme here is is urgency um, and is a recognition uh, that the response does need to be comprehensive and really address that continuum of care. So that may mean uh, expanding harm reduction options like access to a regulated drug supply, like safe consumption sites, like access to to, uh, naloxone kits. That certainly means a lot of work invested into our addiction treatment system for those who who would benefit from accessing flexible and coordinated and patient-centered addiction care. And it speaks to a lot of the escalating inequity that we're seeing, the homelessness and poverty, and really a lot of those fundamental drivers of substance use that we still have not meaningfully addressed, at least to the degree that that is necessary. Alongside those, you know, agreeing with you and talking about expansion and focusing on the urgency, there are also, as you know, physicians who, who are concerned about safer supply 
specifically concerns about drugs being diverted, sold on the streets, or perhaps being sold to people who didn't have a, an addiction before. What do you say to, to doctors who have those kinds of concerns? Yeah, I mean, those, those doctors are, are my colleagues and the people that I have a lot of respect for, and, and I'm involved in those conversations on a daily mm-hmm. basis. And, and, I, and I, have many, I have many of the same thoughts and concerns, but we have to try and let the data guide us as best as possible. And while there are lots of clinical anecdotes and stories of, of that kind of event happening, we also know that, at least in British Columbia, there has been no meaningful change in rates of diagnoses of opioid use disorder among youth on admissions to care for youth with opioid use disorder. So so we're, we really need to ask those questions about how we proceed and do this in a safe and thoughtful way, about how we monitor it going forward. But we also need to be really careful about trying to reconcile those stories with what we can actually see from our public health data and trying to, try to use all of that to guide us moving forward. Doctor, thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Paxton Bach in Vancouver. When a massive barge arrived on the coast of a small island in Dorset, UK, residents and advocates were worried. The barge would house asylum seekers. Many were afraid that it and the surrounding community would be ill-equipped to provide good living conditions for those on board. And this week, those fears deepened. On Tuesday, one of the asylum seekers on board the barge was found dead. Officials are investigating, but already the death has exacerbated existing concerns about living conditions on the vessel. Raka Holly Namby runs an arts organization on the Isle of Portland in Dorset. Raka, I'm wondering if you know anything about the person who's died. No, I do not know. And it's my understanding that there is actually quite limited information currently available about the person who has died. How are people there reacting? With deep sorrow from a multitude of sides of our community, including community members who were originally very anxious, if not angry, about the arrival of the barge for reasons that were quite difficult to hear. And all sides of the community, from what I'm witnessing, are filled with compassion and sorrow for this loss of life. We've been covering this since... since you know, since last April when it was first announced and the reactions that you talk about now, you know, and and compared to then, there were those who were upset that people would be housed in that way. And then there were others who were not welcoming. What kind of, what kind of reception were people getting when the barge came in? Um, When, when we first heard that the barge was was going to arrive and yeah there was there was widespread um, shock anger confusion I think overall a sense that this community have been undermined by a complete lack of of dialogue about this this influx of visitors. You're among the the folks who've been welcoming and trying to help the men on, on this barge you've been facilitating boxing classes what have you learned about the people on board? Well, I think the boxing class is a really interesting example because one of the guys on the boat is a professional boxer, um, as well as having another uh, full-time job. So he's been teaching us and uh, we've learned a lot (laughs) from his techniques. So what I'm learning is, is that 
in there are these glimmers and pockets of of beauty and hope on the island where there's been two way integration friendships have been made and new understandings are taking place um i think sadly this death has in such a horribly ironic way like really amplified that because even people that originally were saying some really difficult to hear really problematic things are now cycling to um pay their respects uh to the site of the barge and laying down flowers and admitting publicly in the media and in letters that yeah they doubted this whole thing they thought that these guys would cause horrible mischief but actually there's super polite interesting lovely people who are teaching this this part uh of the world a lot and that's horrific that it's taken this death to kind of really amplify that have they shared with you any of their feelings or or concerns about living on the barge or what it's like yeah i mean chatting to the guys i box with like Absolutely, yeah. There's there's um, descriptions of the barge as feeling incredibly restrictive. Um, uh, there's really problematic situations of you know when you can leave the barge that your life is dictated around um, buses that you can't take food off the barge, so you can't participate, let's say, in a full day activity uh, unless you have enough means to eat out, which is very expensive, uh, and um, that even though there's communications at the barges you're free to come and go Mm -hmm. there's there's heavy restrictions on it's not like you and me being able to leave our house and 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 go participate in an event and pop back again um yeah i mean i i think the barge itself um we under we understand from some guys that it feels incredibly um quite claustrophobic I, i think there's a real danger of of being placed on water, uh, on feeling like you don't even have the human dignity to be on land. That's really painful and messy. How long do you think this particular group will will have to remain on board? So my understanding, and again, you know, I run an arts organisation on Portland, like I, mm-hmm. I don't know the, the details, but my understanding is, is guys... Um, are on the barge and, until they have a decision made on their on their status on their asylum status, and it's at that moment that um, that that they they'll leave the barge basically. So I think everyone has their own time scale. That everyone has their own journey. Um, I, uh, our mayor of Portland the other day said something I thought really poignant. That you know this barge was meant for for workers that were going to stay on it for like two or three weeks, and not for for months which already the barge has been there since july and and absolutely there have been guys that have been on there uh for a long period of time and that's really worrying and now with what's happened it's like i feel like a lot of us try to leave a glimmer of open-mindedness about um about the barge, about the situation. And this death has like cemented to us that there's such an urgent action needed to reclaim some kind of dignity and, and humanity and human rights for these guys. We spoke with town councillor Carolyn Parks uh, back back in April when word of the, the barge came down. Uh, and she was, like you, very, very upset about it, that it was being brought in without any consultation. But she went on to say to call it inhumane and barbaric. And that's before before this this has happened so when you mentioned that that 
it's added an urgency. Do you think anything will will change? I I hope. <laughs> I can only hope. Mm-hmm. And I'm I've been really impressed with the the activism, like the community organising and activism that's taking place. Um, again, it's undeniable, right? With this with this death, that something has to change. I'm already um, amazed at the level of inhumanity in what's already going on. Um, and it, it, it tests your levels of hope, right? That that our government will be held to account and will change this situation. It's just such a horrific tragedy that, it, again, it's taken this this moment, this this death, that then people are saying, gosh, like, I, I'm sorry. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. powerful. But it's horrifically ironic that that couldn't have happened before. It is very powerful what you're saying, Raka, and I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Raka Holly Namby runs an arts organization on the Isle of Portland in Dorset. We reached her there. There's nothing quite like a good thrift, a pair of jeans that somehow fit all the better because they're worn, a vintage coat that's all the warmer because it was such a bargain, plus bonus points for your environmental footprint. But the staff at a Portland, Oregon charity recently took the thrill of the rare find to a whole new level. So we figured we'd call them up just for kicks. Erin Holcomb is the director of staff ministry at the Portland Rescue Mission. That's where we reached her. Aaron, tell our listeners, let them in on the secret. What did one of your volunteers find in a in one of the donation bins? We have had such an amazing story unfold over these last few weeks. So uh, recently, a man who had been part of our program, he had been living on the streets and gotten into our program. And as he was going through our bin of clothing and shoes, he saw a very bright gold pair of Nikes. And when he saw those, he pulled them and set them aside because he thought that they looked like something that staff should probably see just before we handed them out on the street. And the inside of them is bright red, like red carpet red is the way I've heard it described. And they were in perfect shape. There was not a mark on them, no sign of wear. The laces were still folded in. And so he gave them to our shelter staff, who then gave them to me to say, hey, what do we do with these really nice looking shoes? Maybe they're worth something. (laughs) How long did it take you to figure out what they were all about? I could quickly tell just from Googling that they looked just like these Spike Lee shoes that he wore to the Oscars. Yeah. But I thought, of course, they're not those shoes. Why would they be in our donation bin? Because that would never be the case. And so I thought, these are just really excellent replicas that someone made. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) And what are are replicas even worth anything? You know, we didn't know what to do with them. So I held on to them for several weeks. And then I reached out to a friend of mine who is a sneakerhead. And I said, hey, I have these shoes. I'm sure they're fakes, but what do I do just to make sure? And yeah. he referred me to a high-end sneaker resale shop in Portland. The people at the sneaker shop took them into the back room, so I didn't see their initial reaction. But when they came out, they were holding them very carefully, <laughs> and they said, these are the real thing. They're very rare, very 
unique to see. They said, we never see these. And thank you so much for bringing them in. They said, please take care of them. These are really valuable. And then they offered $10,000 in that moment. So, (laughs) uh, you know, at that point, that's where I thought, okay, there's something. I mean, these are obviously not fake. Well, to be clear, were these the ones that I remember when Spike Lee won his Oscar finally? And it's great purple suit and he was ecstatic and i remember the sneakers are these the ones he wore on stage these are not his personal shoes but there was a a group of about five shoes they said four or five that were manufactured for him and his his friends so he was able to request this small lot to be manufactured so these are not his personal shoes but Mm -hmm. someone in his close circle had passed them along and, you know, they told you at the store to take good care of them. But in in those weeks before you got around to it, yeah. where were you keeping them? So they were in my office for a long time. But then when I needed to get them to the sneaker store, I had them in the back of my minivan for a mm-hmm. long time. And then they were in the clean clothes laundry basket in my bedroom. And then, of course... As soon as I found out what they were worth, they went immediately into a safe place where nothing was going to get spilled on them and they wouldn't get damaged (laughs) at all. And thankfully, they've just made it through without a scrape. (laughs) Okay, that's good to know. I'm glad it was in the clean clothes uh, basket. So you got the verification from from the sneaker experts at the store. But then there was another layer of, of verification. Nike's shoe designer, Tinker Hatfield, came to visit. Yes. Yeah, we reached out to Tinker Hatfield because he's local here in Portland, and I was not sure if we would hear back at all because it was just a shot in the dark. The reason I reached out to him is because in these particular shoes, his name is embroidered besides Spike Lee's. So, and, and if you know about sneakers, which I've been learning, he's an, an incredibly important person in the Nike Air Jordan world. So we just threw it out there. He called me back while he was on vacation to say that he would love to be a part of it. So he said, not only... Would I love to, you know, be part of this? He said, I will, uh, I will bring a design concept board, which has not been published. It was what he and Spike Lee used sending back and forth. Oh, wow. And I, we were, he was also able to get us a replacement box for the Air Jordans because oh. they came down the chute without a box. And then Just he signed the that shoot. box. Oh. So exactly. this is all so, to help even increase the, the value and, and the exactly. sale price you might get. Exactly. And and as I learned, having this box for your sneakers is really important. But having a box yes. that Tinker Hatfield signed is really <laughs> unique. So that was really exciting that he was able to provide those things for us. Has Spike Lee called you? No, we haven't heard from Spike Lee. You know, again, I think he's probably the key to unlocking the mystery because we don't know who donated them. I don't know if that person wants to be known. The fact that they put them down the chute, maybe they were just trying to do a good deed without, you know, getting much of the attention. But we are so incredibly grateful because it costs us about $2 to give a hot, nutritious meal to someone in need. So those shoes are going to provide thousands of meals. So it's just a really beautiful picture of generosity. How much do you think you'll get in the end with, with that poster and the signature and the box? Well, we hope we'll get, you know, we hope someone will be really excited about the shoes and the story and they'll be very generous. Sotheby's is estimating they'll go between fifteen and $20,000. We would be delighted with any result. And at this point, I just hope that it draws people's attention to people struggling with homelessness and addiction. People like James who discovered these shoes in the first place because so many people see the struggles of folks who are living on the street and not many get to see how those lives can change. Smiles and goosebumps here in the studio, Erin. Great speaking with you. Thank you. Oh, thanks for sharing this good news. We're really excited about it. Erin Holcomb is the Director of Staff Ministry at the Portland Rescue Mission. We reached her in Portland, Oregon.
There is a way that some anchor people talk when they are saying the news to you. It is meant to convey authority and objectivity, but it is objectively weird. Still, we have been conditioned to believe it is normal for news people to employ these strange cadences and sudden dips into a deeper voice. The thing is, though, even the clumsiest anchor people understand the words they're using, or at least they understand upwards of 50% of them, which is more than I can say for this anchor person. Hello, and welcome to Channel One, a new way of consuming, reporting, and thinking about the news powered by artificial intelligence. From global news to finance to entertainment, we'll show you how technology enables us to bring you a global perspective. 24-7, right from the heart of our AI native newsroom. That was the sound of an AI news non-personality, which probably isn't surprising. There was something so obviously unnatural about even that standard unnatural news person cadence. Not to mention uh, this. 24-7. <laughs> Did not nail it. That's from a new video posted on the website channel1.ai, which, as you heard, will at some point soon bring us the news 24-7. News that will be generated by a combination of humans and artificial intelligence and presented only by virtual anchor people and reporters who appear in the video, none of whom are even as lifelike as the most wooden human anchor person you've ever seen. Plus, they all gesture wrong, and they engage in banter like this. So go stuff your eyes and your stomach at Wonka. And don't forget to bring along all your leftover Halloween candy. You know, you're really not supposed to bring food in from outside. Okay, Narc. I'm sorry, what was that? Folks, you work hard. Let someone else save the world for once with Aquaman (laughs) and the Lost Kingdom. Okay, Narc. Have I heard worse banter? Yes. Have I done worse banter? Also, yes. But do we need computer-generated creatures doing Uncanny Valley banter, Neil? I almost did a spit take when you said 24-7. I'm not kidding. No, we don't. We do not need that. Not when there are still so many of us humans willing to put on unflattering blazers, sit at a pretend desk, and talk like this. But maybe AI anchors are the future, and people are yesterday's news. Only time will tell. All my blazers are flattering, by the way. That was the well, most offensive thing company, you said. Obviously. Yeah, obviously. yeah, of course. That was the most offensive yeah, thing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> That's right. Not listening to someone say 24-7. Oh, God. So upsetting. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavale disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favorite podcast app. Russian President Vladimir Putin says he is still open to talking about releasing American journalist Evan Gershkovich, but that it's, quote, not easy. In a wide-ranging four-hour press conference, President Putin spoke publicly about the Wall Street Journal reporter for the first time. Mr. Gershkovich was arrested while reporting in Russia in March and accused of spying. He faces 20 years in prison. Today, a Russian court rejected his appeal for release. Michael Schwartz is a New York Times reporter and a friend of Evan Gershkovich. We reached him in New York. Michael, do you believe Russia's President Vladimir Putin when he says, as he did today, that that he wants to reach an agreement, that there's ongoing dialogue with the U.S., that they're speaking the same language? 
my my uh, philosophy always is to never believe anything that Vladimir Putin says, though we do know from other sources, uh, including in the U.S. government, that there have been negotiations. And in fact, reporting came out uh, just uh, in the last few days about the State Department, from the State Department, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, the U.S. government had made it what they are describing as a significant offer for an exchange uh, to uh, the Russian side, which the Russian side then rejected. CNN is reporting that the White House was, was offering a large number of Russian detainees uh, who are being held on espionage charges in exchange for, for Evans' release, but also for the release of Paul Whelan, who is an American-Canadian that's been detained. And we've reported on that uh, that as well. From your perspective, as as Evans' friend, what, if anything, more would you like to see from the U.S.? I mean, I, I can't uh, claim to be on the inside of this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have to take the White House uh, and the State Department at their word that they are um, doing everything they can to secure Evans' release. I mean, the problem here is, uh, I don't think not, I don't think the, the, the U.S. in this case, it's not the U.S. that is arresting people and holding them hostages, as we've seen time and again uh, with these uh, sorts of things, not just with Russia, but with other countries. They arrest and imprison individuals uh, who are doing their jobs. In the case of Evan, he was doing journalism uh, in Russia at the time of his arrest. And they demand the release of people who have committed real crimes, which puts the United States and other countries that has to deal with uh, uh, these people in a, in a real bind. Um, and, you know, as we saw with Brittany Griner uh, mm -hmm. and the exchange uh, last year, you know, this can, this can be done, but it's, it's a delicate situation. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the United States has to weigh the, the fact that they're, they're letting go some pretty, uh, you know, pretty bad people who've done some pretty, some pretty terrible things. Does it feel closer to you, the possibility of a release at this point? You know, I can only speak emotionally, and mm -hmm. and you know, uh, you know, in my head, I've been I've been following, you know, Vladimir Putin since he uh, became prime minister uh, the first time in 1999, and and, and, and president in uh, in 2000. You know, he 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 lies for you know strategic and tactical gain. Um, uh, he, you know, he, he he lies as a rule, uh, but emotionally, when I heard. Uh, Putin today saying that there are negotiations and that not not only that there are negotiations, but that he is uh, supportive of an exchange. Um, it it made me hopeful. Um, that may be a false hope, um, but I think we're sort of all grasping for anything we can get at this point. There's also new video of Evan that was released from court today. Uh, just describe for our listeners what you saw in that video. I mean, as always, Evan is poised. Uh, you know, he doesn't betray uh, any hint of despair, though, after 260 days in uh, a high security Russian jail, uh, one can only imagine uh, what he is going through emotionally. Um, I've been lucky enough to have received um, letters from him periodically. Mm -hmm. Uh, from prison, and and in all, in, in in every instance, he is he is buoyant. He is you know more concerned about my well being, uh, mm -hmm. it seems, than than uh, than than his own. He jokes um, and uh, uh, you know provides his own encouragement, which is which is sort of incredible. It, it, it's hard to imagine, but we're coming close to a year uh, of him being in prison, and it's 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 heartening to be able to see him. Uh, looking so poised and, and, and confident uh, in these court hearings. But as we've all come to 
uh, expect, you know, the court, the courts only find one way. It's, you know, they're always, you know, every single, every single court appearance just merely extends the length of his imprisonment. And as, as we saw today, they extended it to the end of January, at least. Yeah. And those, those letters, you know, on one hand, you get the, these letters that, that uh, bring you joy to, to, you know, hear or read that, that he's, you know, making jokes and, and asking about you as well, that he's buoyant, as you said. But on the other hand, you see him on a day like today in, you know, a cage of sorts, right? right? So how do you balance those those emotions, seeing your friend like that? I mean, he's treated like a criminal um, when everybody knows uh, that he's not a criminal. The, the Russian legal system has long ceased to, to, to be that, you know, to, to, to be a legal system. It's a system of, repri- of reprisals and a, a, a system that, uh, whether it's with Evan or, or any other of the many political prisoners that are currently behind bars, and let's not forget that there are many, many Russian political prisoners uh, many, many Russian journalists, uh, many, many people who've do, done nothing more but complained or liked uh, uh, messages that oppose the war in Ukraine who are behind bars right now. And it's, it's a system that, that is in place merely to either extract concessions or mete out uh, oppression. And so, uh, you know, seeing Evan locked in a cage in a courtroom like that, that, you know, that, that's, that's something we all have to keep in mind. This is not a system of justice that he is going through. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of uh, state instrument. When was the last time you heard from him? Uh, I sent him uh, a letter right before Thanksgiving. So mm-hmm. uh, it usually, it's usually a, t- a few days before he gets them. And it's usually uh, takes a few weeks uh, before I get anything back. Uh, you know, he, he, he just celebrated his birthday uh, a few months ago in, 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 in prison. So there are going to be these milestones, right? People are going to get married. Friends are experiencing these milestones that he doesn't get to be a part of. And that can't but wear on him. And, you know, it's, it's, you know my worry is that we don't get a full sense of really what he's going through. through. You can imagine it. Um, and, you know, we all take comfort in how... Um, kind of buoyant he always seems to be and that's that's very much in his character but uh you can also imagine the dark days uh that he's enduring i'm glad you're at least getting some some word and some communication michael i appreciate your time thank you thank you thanks for thanks for hearing me michael schwartz is a new york times reporter he's in new york Today, Ukraine is one step closer to joining the European Union. Until today, the Prime Minister of Hungary had threatened to veto any attempt to begin accession negotiations with Ukraine. But when the time came for the European Council to vote, Viktor Orban did not stand up against his fellow leaders. Instead, he stood up and walked out of the room, which allowed for a unanimous vote in Ukraine's favor. Some are applauding the result, but criticism is mounting over what may have motivated Mr. Orban's cooperation. Damien Buzelager is a German member of the European Parliament, which voted to support accession talks last month. We reached him in Berlin. Damien, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling today's vote a victory for his country and and for all of Europe. What does it signal to you, this vote? For me, it's a big signal of support for Ukraine, and I think that's needed 
Now I'm looking forward to the vote tomorrow on the budget part, and I hope that goes well as well. Why do you think that support is important right now? Yeah, I mean, I've been, uh, since the full-scale invasion, I've been uh, to Kiev twice. And, I mean, for me, it's just very impressive to see that basically while they're fighting this war against an imperialist force, they're also trying to really get their country ready to join the European Union already. I mean, there's still a lot to be done when it comes to fighting corruption, creating oversight bodies, ensuring the full democracy and so on. There's steps um, that are on a rule of law system and so on that are part of this accession process. Um, but to have that clear vision of, uh, you know, where's the road heading? Where are we going? I think that's very important. Corruption and the conflict are two of the things that Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban uh, mentioned in some comments. He did not take part in today's vote, but as you well know, he's been making his feelings on this very clear. We'll just play for you and our listeners part of what he had to say. Enlargement is not a theoretical issue. Enlargement is a merit-based, legally detailed process, uh, which has preconditions. We have set up seven preconditions. And even by the evaluation of the Commission, three out of the seven is not fulfilled. So there is no reason to negotiate membership of Ukraine now. He says it's a bad decision. Yeah, to be honest, uh, if we would had to have to have accession talks with Hungary, um, Hungary wouldn't pass at this point. Uh, I mean, we're currently withholding a lot of funds because of corruption and rule of law issues um, in Hungary. The last elections where Viktor Orban got elected again are... Uh, transparently uh, declared non-fair. They were free, but they were non-fair in the amount of time the candidates had on the news and so on. So what you have to hear here is basically one person that is building a mini autocracy in the middle of Europe. And so I'm not surprised that um, he tries to find some fake arguments of why this is not working. In the end, it's because he wants to please his buddy, Putin. Late Wednesday night, the European Commission decided to unblock 10 billion euros worth of funding for Hungary. Why do you think that decision came down? Uh, Very simply, I think, to buy that vote uh, from Viktor Orban. I mean, they say that there are some very clear criteria and why they had to do this now. I mean, the timing is very odd, as you can imagine. Um, 10 billion to be freed up at this point, just before before the 27 national leaders meet um, to take these important decisions about Ukraine accession and Ukraine funding. I mean, it is a very weird coincidence, and it's also something that has to have some repercussions here in the European Union, because I don't think that we should buy out uh, our mini autocrat with that kind of money from European taxpayers. You're saying they did this so that he didn't use his veto power? I'm just saying that the timing is, is very odd. Yeah, like uh, Victor Orban has been saying over the past months that he would never allow the formal accession talks to open. He would never allow for the 50 billion euros that we want to commit to Ukraine to give them a bit more of a longer-term planning perspective to rebuild the economy. He would never allow that to pass. And then, you know, a day before these decisions are being taken, the European Commission basically unblocks 10 billion euros, which, I mean, the, the total money block currently for Hungary amounts to 17% of their GDP. Yeah? So this is not the full amount, but it's a, it's a large chunk of that money that is now being unblocked. I mean, to cut it very short, there's no reason why we should believe that the situation in Hungary has improved when it comes to the rule of law and corruption and to unblock that money now is a completely wrong signal. Online, on social media, you called it blackmail. Why do you think that, what's the benefit? Why is this vote so important right now that they would do that? 
Because it's clear that we are, uh, together with the US and Canada, financing around 70% um, of the Ukrainian budget at this point. Yeah? So if um, we stop supporting Ukraine with a consolidated European Union effort, this is a signal of weakness uh, towards our support for Ukraine um, that I don't think we can dare to send in the current uh, you know, situation. It's actually... I think a risk for our security here in Europe if we would now back down from from the full support that we had signaled so far. So, um, and if you look at what's happening in the U.S. at the same time, I think it's very crucial that this was a positive vote, and that's why they went this way. But there would have been a plan B, which I wouldn't have liked. Um, but uh, to just go with 26 national countries, so without Hungary, uh, for an interstate solution, and uh, that would have also worked. Um, and sometimes I think maybe you should, you know, consider whether it's really worth paying that price, giving an autocrat uh, money just to to have this this combined vote. Officials with the European Commission, we should mention, deny that this is blackmail. They say these funds were unfrozen because of, quote, sufficient guarantees to say that independence of the judiciary will be strengthened in Hungary. And they say they'll monitor the situation in case any, quote, backslidings were to occur, unquote. Does that give you any solace? I'm just, uh, you know, repeating my point from earlier. Um, if you look at the timing, it's just very, very odd. That just doesn't make any sense that this is a coincidence of a sudden improvement of the rule of law. If you look at what the experts say about what's going on in, in, in Hungary at the moment, everybody's saying the situation is getting worse, not better. So I just can't find that reasoning very convincing. We should not be in a situation like this. Yeah? We should have stronger tools in the European Union to stop this kind of democratic backsliding that we see in Hungary. We need a decision-making mechanism that isn't dependent on 27 vetoes, but has a more democratic kind of backing, not this kind of kind of medieval meeting of 27 heads and state of government. Are you going to get those mechanisms, those tools, do you think? We in the European Parliament um, two months ago triggered the process for that. It's called the treaty change process because the European Union is built on treaties. So we need to change them and change the, these rules, these decision-making mechanisms. But yeah, that will be a difficult process also because you can imagine that at the end of this process, you would again need the support of all EU countries. So I think we need to try because this is a shameful kind of situation right now. Damien, thank you for your time. Thank you. Damien Buselager is a German member of European Parliament. We reached him in Berlin. In the face of a seemingly ever-growing number of conflicts and crises around the world, it's easy to wonder if things are especially bad right now. And it's cold comfort to learn that it's not your imagination. According to the UN's Global Humanitarian Overview for 2024, the world's humanitarian outlook is grim. And increasingly, the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, is having a hard time raising the funds necessary to meet the world's needs. In a statement this week, the OCHA disclosed that funding shortfalls in 2023 meant its humanitarian organizations reached less than two-thirds of the people they aimed to assist. Ramesh Rajasingham is the Acting Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief at the United Nations. We reached him in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
Ramesh, give our listeners a sense of just how this year's shortfall compares to other years that you've been doing this work. Well, th- this has been the um, w- the biggest funding gap that we have had. We requested $56 billion to meet the humanitarian needs. These are the most vulnerable people on Earth uh, of, about one, uh, of about 250 million people. Of that, uh, we received um, one-third which is the and this represents the biggest funding gap that we have ever experienced uh, uh, since the formation of uh, my organization. And just to be clear, you had to lower that fundraising goal from fifty-seven billion to forty-six. Yes. So for twenty, we just launched uh, our response plan uh, for the globe for twenty twenty-four, and uh, we've had to lower the uh, the ask to about forty-six billion now. And so we had to prioritize and be much more rigorous and disciplined about really focusing on the most vulnerable people, which means that uh, the, these are the ones who are perhaps uh, on the on the door of famine, but also climate change. And climate change is impacting all these all these groups throughout. So climate change is interwoven into many of these crises. So are contributions going down, or is it just the scale? of what you're you're up against and the number of conflicts and crises it's around both. the world. It's both. The contributions um, went down in 2023 this year compared to last year. Last year we received uh, a little over 30 billion dollars and uh, this year it's it's just under 20 billion dollars. So that went down significantly. Mm-hmm. But the scale of needs has increased. The Sudan exploded earlier on this year which is a a, a, a horrible crisis where millions have been displaced or have become refugees across the border. We're just looking today at, at uh, Gaza, where you have 2.7 million people that we are appealing for Gaza and the West Bank. And on top of that, we're seeing you know um, massive uh, climate uh, crisis um, impacts in the Sahel in Africa. And don't forget, Africa is probably the least responsible for the climate crisis in terms of their emissions. You mentioned that you're in Addis Ababa right now, uh, where there are launch events for the the humanitarian overview for this year. As you speak to people there, partners that you work with, colleagues, what are they telling you about the impact on, on their work in the region? Well, it's, it's, um, I just returned from um, a region called Somali region in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and they've just been hit with a once-in-a-generation flood. That's displaced, uh, I think, over 700,000 people in just this one region in Somalia. So I think the, the, the long-term impact of this, and I think especially it's also the long-term impact of a loss of education and the lost generations that come with it, um, will you know, we'll just have a major impact on the globe in the future. And in terms of Afghanistan, today nine NGOs have issued a joint statement saying nearly 500,000 Afghans who had returned to the country from Pakistan are in desperate need of food, shelter, and work. And that's just so they can survive this winter. We know the United Nations cut its food aid uh, just in the past year to 10 million people in Afghanistan. What has that meant, that kind of a cut? Oh, I mean, I, I think Afghanistan um, has basically faced every possible crisis mm-hmm. you can think of. Uh, conflict, climate, economic governance, loss of rule of law, human rights, everything. So they, they are already in perhaps one of the most vulnerable situations of any population, any national population around the world. 
So you pull out this assistance in the middle of an Afghan winter, which, and you know, the Afghan winters, you, temperatures easily drop below zero often. Um, you, you, you're looking at a, a devastating crisis for the people and especially the children. The contributions are, are voluntary um, and they come largely, uh, you know, from wealthier states. Given everything we've talked about, is it worth considering other mechanisms to fund the UN's humanitarian programs? Yeah, so I think one thing that I, I should mention here is that humanitarians in many cases have been left taking all the responsibility in many areas where there's been a pullout of development actors. So humanitarians have been left holding the ball here. Uh, what we would like to see much, very much now is development actors in just, this region. Just for, let me interrupt for in, one uh, second. Sorry, in, uh, Ramesh. Just describe for our listeners what you mean by development actors for all for those of us absolutely. you know listening at home. So we are humanitarians, and humanitarians generally provide the most basic relief assistance when you have a disaster or a crisis or a conflict. We also have partners called development actors. They are the ones who provide the long-term programming. They are the people who ensure that there's progress, that people can have access to livelihoods, they can have access to jobs, their schools can be built, their hospitals can be built and supported. They are the ones who, who ensure that a, a community can progress and prosper. Humanitarian actors are a band-aid. We, we are, our assistance is, is, is very temporary and really, and relief-oriented. So we don't provide long-term solutions. In the case of today, we have found ourselves as humanitarian actors covering for some of these development actors because they've gone missing. So we really want those development actors, the World Bank and all the regional banks, to come in and provide much more support in these areas where they, in fact, can work, but for whatever reason, they're not there right now. For people to do this work, I imagine that they, they have to still have hope even in this year, in these very difficult times. Um, how do you remain optimistic in a year like this, or do you? Well, I think we remain optimistic, primarily by, by you know, visiting a lot of these communities that, we, that, we are, that we're trying to support and, and, and spending time with them, because when you hear their stories and what they've been through, uh, and this enormous resilience that they have against all odds, children, women, men, families, in, in situations that you and I perhaps have, will never mm -hmm. experience. And the way they pull themselves through with dignity and, and, and gratitude for whatever they can get uh, is, is inspiring. And when you, when you see that, you yourself realize that you know, this task is also very much our responsibility and our obligation to, to stay the course all the way through. Ramesh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Ramesh Rajasingham is the Acting Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief at the United Nations. We reached him in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's been almost a century since moviegoers got their first glimpse of the cheery rodent making this sweet music.
he plays that tune by banging a cow's teeth with a spoon and playing a goose like a trumpet. So naturally, Mickey Mouse captured our hearts. And as of January 1st, he will be set free. That's when Mickey will enter the public domain in the U.S. 95 years have elapsed since his first appearance in the film Steamboat Willie. And in less than three weeks, Disney will no longer hold the copyright on that early version of the character who who serves as the mascot for the entire Disney empire. Jennifer Jenkins is the director of Duke University's Center for the Study of Public Domain. We reached her in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jennifer, my co-host Chris is, I mean, he's obsessed with Blood and Honey, uh, the horror movie that came out after Winnie the Pooh entered the public domain. Should we expect a Mickey Mouse slasher flick next? Oh, I don't know. thing is, we don't know what to expect. That's one of the fun things about the public domain is it spawns all sorts of things. So, yes, maybe we'll see a slasher film, but we'll probably see some some other wonderful, warmer, and more cuddly remakes as well. Mm-hmm. This is a concrete example. Yeah. The Great Gatsby went into the public domain mm-hmm. a few years ago. And so, you know, we have a three-year period where we can look back at what people did. And they made prequels. They made sequels. They added zombies. They made musicals. They made TV series. And so the public domain will enable all sorts of things. So, yes, there might be a slasher film, but there will be many other things as well. So break it down for us, though. What are the limits on what people will and will not be able to do with Mickey, this iteration of Mickey, this early iteration of Mickey, as of January 1st? Okay. So what they can do is they can start their creative engines and make new creative works featuring the public domain Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse characters. Um, what they cannot do is to use the Mickey character in a way that confuses consumers about where products, merchandise, productions come from. So it's not time to start putting Mickey on your backpacks or your mm-hmm. lunch boxes or your onesies or your pajama pants. Why? Because when people see that, they might think they're getting an official Disney product, and they're not. And that's what trademark law is concerned about. Similarly, don't put Mickey as a logo at the beginning of your next cartoon in a way that makes people think that they're getting a Disney production. That's what trademark law is concerned about. What you can do is use Mickey creatively in a work when consumers are not at all confused, duped, misled about where the work comes from. So how do you do that? I make my wonderful new version of Steamboat Willie, but I'm concerned about climate change. And so, you know, the the riverbed is dry and the steamboat's just sitting there and Mickey and Minnie are scratching their heads wondering what they're going to do. If at the beginning of my new film or your new film, it says, this is a Jennifer production, this is a Neil production, this is not endorsed, sponsored, licensed, or produced by Disney, then no one thinks they're getting a Disney joint. And we're fine. If they do that, then even one of Disney's biggest competitors, you know, Netflix or Amazon, if we're talking about streaming, can make that film that you described. Sure, and exactly. Um, and you don't ha- you don't technically have to, but it's very helpful to have a disclaimer. But this is not the first time that something's gone into the public domain. Um, we have many, many versions of Snow White, of Cinderella, of Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, people can distinguish where various cultural products featuring public domain characters come from. And so, you know, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but I think Disney's going to be fine. I think people are going to go to its theme parks. They're going to watch its movies. They're going to buy its merchandise. And it still has trademark rights, merchandising rights. And it also has rights over the newer iterations of Mickey. But at the same time, people will be able to use this beloved character and reimagine um, Mickey and Minnie in their own works. And that's great as well. Remind our listeners what the 1928 Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse looks like. (laughs) 
Well, he, he, he is an anthropomorphic mouse. Um, he's not really saying much yet. Uh, Walt Disney is all voicing himself, so he sort of just, you know, just sort of makes noises. Um, and his, his eyes are black ovals instead of sort of wider eyes, white eyes with pupils in them. He's, he's wearing the shorts. He's wearing the cute pants. Um, and his nose is a little bit longer. His ears are slightly different. He's recognizably Miss Mickey, but he's a little bit different than what you might think of if you're thinking of Fantasia Mickey from 1940. And Minnie's a little different, too. Mickey shouldn't get all the attention. Uh, <laughs> I know exactly. That's what I'm, I'm making my feminist remix. Right, <laughs> Minnie will be Minnie will be piloting the steamboat or the spaceship, and Mickey's yes. going to be the, the you know, retelling the of steamboat Willie from Minnie's perspective. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we see a lot of that. Like, you know, go go to go into a theater right now and see the Frankenstein, uh, the Frankenstein feminist remake. Or there, you know, there's a feminist. There are two feminist retellings of The Great Gatsby from you know Jordan's perspective and Daisy's perspective. Yeah. So this is something we're seeing a lot of as feminist remakes of uh, public domain works. And um, I might, you know, along with that slasher film that your co-host loves, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we may see we may see some feminist takes on Mickey and Minnie as well. You mentioned that they don't speak, right, in Steamboat Willie. So. Now, yeah. will, if people are using that 1928 version of Mickey or Minnie, do they have to stay silent or are they allowed to, to speak? They're allowed to speak. So that's one. Of, so you asked me about trademark law, which is one very interesting wrinkle with the Mickey Mouse situation. But the other super interesting wrinkle is we have a 1928 property going into the public domain, but the same characters also reappear in more recent, still copyrighted works. And so the question is, what does Disney still own from those newer copyrighted works? Well, the answer is only things that meet copyright thresholds for eligibility. So mere ideas, stock characteristics, anything that's just a merely trivial variation to the 1928 characters and works, no one owns those. And so having a mouse that's adorable, having a mouse that speaks, having a mouse that speaks in a squeaky voice as opposed to sounding like Barry White. I mean, what do you think a mouse is going to sound like, right? All these things are not things that copyright covers and consequently not things that Disney owns and can prevent other people from doing. Do you think then that there's going to be a lot of litigation and showdowns in the courtrooms over Mickey in 2024 because of those fine lines and nuance? You know what's interesting is Disney also owns Winnie the Pooh. And I'm not aware of any lawsuits. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have to ask them. Disney itself is the poster child for using the public domain. I mean, they are themselves the best possible use case for the value of the public domain. If you look at their movies, all those beloved movies that we love, mm-hmm. um, Frozen, inspired by the Snow Queen, yeah. The Lion King, inspired by Hamlet, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Pinocchio, these all came directly from public domain works. And so they are a prolific, brilliant, and very successful user of the public domain. And so, you know, I I hope that they remember their debt to the public domain when Mickey and Minnie Mouse enter the public domain. We will see. Jennifer, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Delight speaking with you too, Neil. I am not obsessed with the Winnie the Pooh horror movie at all. Jennifer Jenkins is the director of Duke University's Center for the Study of Public Domain. She's in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.